According to various surveys, about 35% of the adult American population is chronically lonely. Some people enjoy being alone. We call that solitude. But loneliness is not desired, for it feels like relational banishment. Could one legally sue others for such emotional suffering? I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. It was the musician Harry Nilsson who came up with the lyric, One is the loneliest number. Two can be as bad as one, as it's the loneliest number since the number one. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Since the number one One is the loneliest number One is the loneliest number One is the loneliest number That you'll ever do Well, here we have two. Good old Alan Campbell here. Delighted to have his guest, Dr. J.W., otherwise known as Terry Freiberg. He is the author of a trilogy of books, frankly addressing the issue of loneliness. The first one was entitled Four Seasons of Loneliness. The second follow-up was Growing Up Lonely. And then latterly, the newest, latest book in this trilogy is called Surrounded by Others and Yet So Alone. And the subtitle goes on to say, A Lawyer's Case Studies of Love, Loneliness and Litigation. Hmm, love and litigation. Well, our guest will tell us more. I should give you a little bit background of, of his qualifications, which are numerous. I mean, if I were to give a list, he's, he's written for Psychology Today. He has a PhD from UCLA and a Doctor of Jurisprudence degree from Harvard Law School. It doesn't get better than that, folks. Uh, he's known as the Oliver Sacks of Law. He's been practicing for 30 years. He's highly regarded, highly respected in all fields related to his area of study and application as a career. But he is also a gentleman who's very concerned about, if you will, the old, well, the old expression, which happens to be still valid, the human condition. So without any further ado, please welcome to Watching America, Dr. J.W. Freiberg. Terry, welcome. Nice to have you here. Thank you very much. My pleasure indeed. I want to ask you, where did you grow up? Where did you start? I mean, as a little boy, I can't imagine that you were riding your bicycle one day and said, wait a minute, I've got to get off my flyer bicycle. I've got to remove uh, the cards that have the clothes pegs on them to make that interesting noise on the spokes. And I'm going to... Now think about what I want to do. Oh, I know. I want to have a degree in psychology and sociology and also a degree from Harvard in law. How did that all come about? Tell us about your childhood first. Well, I grew up in California um, in in the Los Angeles area. Uh, So a kid who was outside, indeed, putting cards in the spokes of the uh, bicycle to make that sound you're referencing. Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly so. I uh, had a lovely childhood and uh, aspired wildly to go to uh, the University of California at Berkeley for college studies. Uh, somehow lucked into that fabulous institution right at the time that the free speech movement of some renown uh, took place. So uh, it sort of opened my eyes and I was uh, very much a child of the 60s, having been raised in the 50s. Went back down from San Francisco to Los Angeles for um, graduate studies at UCLA and then took an assistant professorship at Boston University, uh, teaching social psychology in the sociology department. And um, a decade later, through some happenstance, indeed, uh, Harvard Law School invited me to come over and get a law degree. Wow. And um, I couldn't resist that. And I had great plans to be a constitutional lawyer or something quite impressive like that. But uh, that's not at all what happened. After just a few years in a big firm where I sort of learned the basics, I was invited to a smaller firm where I could become general counsel to uh, some of the city's Boston's largest and oldest and finest children's social service agencies. So before I knew it, Others, other agencies had uh, joined on, and I was representing uh, over a thousand. Well, I never counted them, but let's say over a thousand psychiatrists, psychologists, and clinical social workers. Uh, and I was the lawyer they called when they had a case and they had legal questions arising out of their clinical work. And over the years. Over three decades, the word loneliness or, or, or separation or disconnection kept appearing more and more and more, along with other mental issues that the patients or clients presented with. And I didn't know anything about loneliness. I don't think many people in the world did. It really not a lot was written about it. So I started reading about it as I had to speak to these clinicians more and more on the topic and um, ended up... Um, uh, writing books on it myself. That's the history. Well, you have this synthesis then of, of disciplines, obviously, uh, and you have terminal degrees in, in both subjects. Were you ever at war with yourself about favoring one side of an issue versus the other? In, in, in other words, the legal mind versus the sociological, psychological side of you. Uh, was, was there always harmony between those two aspects of your, of your psyche or was there sometimes conflict? I wouldn't say there was either, if I might, but they were quite separate because, of course, I was being hired as an attorney. Um, these clinicians needed to know if they could call the police or if they should contact social services or if they can, could invite into clinical session the, let's say, estranged father of a child's child client who had been barred from his presence by a probate and family court judge. So they were looking for legal advice, and I hope I gave decent legal advice. But the back of my mind was thinking about the social psychology of what was involved. And I kept copious notes, uh, almost in a defensive posture, about the circumstances of any given call. That's to say the family and the individuals involved in the clinician's work. And it's from those files that I write my books. So the social psychology followed on later, if you like. It was a bit of a hobby, trying to figure out in my own mind what was going on, particularly because the social level of the psychological events fascinated me. How come more and more clients 
were presenting to these clinicians as chronically lonely, as totally dissociated from others, as unable to communicate and receive nurturing from those in their lives. That question just arose on its own. And the more I thought about it, the more I couldn't wait to get some time on my hands to try to write about it. Let me ask you a question, uh, and you may say it's reciprocal, I don't know, but the, the question that comes to mind is, is loneliness a precursor to various forms of mental illness, or is mental illness a precursor to sometimes loneliness? Well, they're deeply integrated, as you suggest. If you look on the list of personality disorders, um, we're all used to talking about histrionic or, or narcissistic or paranoia or schizoid personality disorders. But uh, there's another one that's not too often talked about called schizotypal personality disorder. So you can have a psychiatric disorder that that divorces you from contact with others at the extreme case. But the fascinating thing I was looking at was the sociological generation of ever more schizotypal disorder, ever more loneliness. Let me give you a statistic. In about 1990, a very powerful study of loneliness was done that showed about 20% of United States adults reported as chronically lonely. Let me just stop myself for a moment. I don't mean the everyday loneliness that all of us feel from time to time. All of us, of course we do. People we love die, disappear, move away. Of course, we're lonely from time to time, just like we're sad from time to time. But that doesn't mean we're clinically depressed and it doesn't mean we're chronically lonely. Those are different. In 2010, a follow-up study was done. And instead of the 20% number that had appeared in 1990, it was now 35%. I don't know of of a follow-on study. I wish I had one for 2020. Uh, It was interrupted. It was planned, actually, but interrupted by COVID. But clearly, um, more than a third of the United States adult population self-reports as chronically lonely. You use two terms, which I find uh, most interesting. You say there's an issue of disconnection and misconnection. Could you differentiate what those two different terms mean and how they manifest in one's life? Yes, indeed. So disconnection is fairly obvious. There, There are people who are loners. Most of us have known somebody like that, I suppose. And they just don't associate much with others, not meaningfully. They may say hello at the grocery store in a friendly way to the checkout person and so on, but they really don't have anyone in their lives, no one to call, no one who calls them. So no great surprise that people who are so disconnected from others can fall into what I earlier defined as chronic loneliness. I wrote a book on that in 2016 uh, called Four Seasons of Loneliness, the title attempting to indicate that it's just as important for babies and little kids as it is for middle-aged and aged persons to be well-connected to others. That's the kind of animal we are as human beings. So disconnection leads to chronic loneliness sometimes, not always. There are disconnected people who are delighted with their solitude and they're not lonely for others. But they're somewhat the exception. Disconnection is a dangerous state of affairs for a human being or for any social mammal that's built like human beings. 
After publishing that book, it came to my attention that I had inadvertently ignored half of of all the chronically lonely people. Because only about half of them are disconnected. I, I sort of came to the awareness that the other half feel just as lonely. Subjectively, they feel disconnected. Even if they're surrounded by others, they're married, they have children, they have colleagues, they have neighbors, they have teammates, but they, they're not plugged in. There's no juice through those pipes. There's no nurturing, no warmth obtained from these relationships. So you can become lonely by being disconnected from everyone else, or you can become lonely, chronically lonely, by being misconnected with those in your lives, by suffering relationships that are present but not fulfilling. The Four Seasons book in particular um, strikes me as of, uh, incredibly interesting, uh, not that the other two are not, but with the Four Seasons, I, I, I want to go back to the stages of development uh, with, with our personalities. We've all seen... Uh, you know, Psychology 101, we see the, 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 the monkey, rhesus monkey, I can't recall what it is, that is deprived of, of human contact and it's, it's made of a combination of chicken wire and, and carpeting with uh, non-expressive buttons for, for a face and what have you. And, and the poor creature goes insane. I think just about every freshman in psychology class is exposed to that, to that uh, disturbing Harry film. Harry Harlow. Yes. Um, to what degree do people at some point welcome the loneliness? You did say that, you know, there are those persons who prefer to be alone, if you will, the, you know, Henry David Thoreau's who are very, very, you know, comfortable going off to their own little walled and, and existing like that. But it, can it be a progressive thing or can trauma bring about uh, a sudden hmm. need for seclusion? I think you've rolled several interesting questions into one. Um the uh, let me let me get later to trauma because that's a fascinating question and we're we're just initiating a, a major study on touch the role of touch in connection and its utility in trauma therapy but let me go back to Harry Harlow's experiment and that's the one with the that as you say we all read in psychology one about how monkeys uh, prefer a softly covered uh, wire frame. Uh, to a plain, hard touch wireframe, even if the milk bottle that they can suckle from is over on the on the hard one. As soon as they feed themselves, they go back to the soft one. So why are they doing that? Human beings are much more animal than we often recognize. Yes, we're humans. We do have a frontal lobe uh, that makes us very much unlike all the other animals, but we're also animals and mammals of a certain sort. We are small pod, family-oriented mammals, like the cetaceans, so that's the seagoing mammals, dolphins, porpoises, whales, um, and various herd animals and various types of monkeys. So we gain our safety and our comfort from being with others. Let's remember that in medieval Europe, the greatest punishment you could get for transgression was to be banished, was to be put outside the city wall. That's a perfect metaphor for the importance of collectivity. That's what makes humans viable. We're not fast runners. We don't have such great eyes or sense of smell or hearing, but we cooperate and we coordinate with one another. And along with our hands, that makes us absolutely dominant as, as we know. Well, we now have the brain imagery to study the neurology 
of connection. We understand how the nurturing we do of our little babies. I don't know if you have children, but all of us are ex-children. Yes, I've had three sons. All right. So if I were to ask you how many kisses and hugs were put on each of those children, what would you answer? Uh, innumerable, but I also have a little unique habit of also biting. And what I mean by that is when all the babies were born, I would hold them on my chest and I'd love to just kind of like gnaw on them lightly. And I never stopped. And so now there, some of my sons are in, in their late 20s and 30s. And I, I figured, why stop the practice? It's wonderful. So I always sign everything, kisses and bites, dad. That's lovely. That's a lovely story. Thank you for sharing that. But we we touch our children. We hold our children. Unlike any other mammals nurture and nurse their young and are quite physical in contact. If you look at how elephants sleep, for example, they make these wondrous circles of the bulls out on the edge, lying down on their side, the cows inside of them and the young ones inside of them, all touching one another. Mm. Rhinoceri are very, very uh, touching with one another, nurturing of one another in that way. That's the kind of animal we are. So when we nurture our children, when we hold them, nurse them, uh, pick them up when they scrape their knee, hold them for four or five years. Into, uh, and imagine in the ancient world, how long you had to hold a child to keep it safe from natural uh, kinds of animals, problems and sharp rocks and all sorts mm -hmm. of things that were present that we've eliminated. Yes. <clears throat> we are literally training our young to find connection and love in the world. And we're able with brain imagery to follow the neurological patterning that's taking place inside their brains that's causing them to hook up connection with others with the presence of the endogenous opioids, serotonin, and other drugs that are emitted, pleasure drugs that are in our brains that teach us to do species continuity activities. <clears throat> so we train, we literally train young humans to go find connection and love. So what happens when that doesn't take place? When you have non-nurturing parents, um, some parents are completely affectively neutral. <clears throat> um, they, they, typically a woman becomes pregnant by accident or rape or something horrific and has no interest in emoting, as I've just described with that child. So what would happen to that child? Well, that child would not develop the internal linkage between touch and loving connection, nurturing and soothing, would not make that link with the endogenous opioids in the brain. And that, by the way, begins to explain why people from that kind of a background are far more apt to substitute other kinds of opioids for the pleasure well-connected people get from their relationships. Now, the second part of the fascinating question you ask, what does all this have to do with trauma? Because after all, many people are raised lovingly by their parents, let's hope most, even a strong, strong, strong majority. But what happens when people experience trauma? Can you break that link between human nurturing connection and the feel-good chemicals in your brain? And the answer is yes, trauma can, do, can really compromise that link. And we're just now learning in the field of trauma psychiatry how to work with people. So we've uh, developed many uh, techniques, uh, but the main issue in trauma-related disconnection is, is that people have stored traumatic memories in their bodies. 
somatically. So talk therapy we've learned doesn't work by itself when you're dealing with traumatized individuals who can no longer relate effectively with others in their lives. We need to work with their bodies at the same time. So there are various techniques, yoga, for example, theater acting out, um, brain imaging feedback studies. Um, we're learning how to work with traumatized persons who have lost that link between close nurturing connection and the feel-good chemistry in our brains. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm most happy to be your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And my guest is indeed Dr. J.W. Terry, as he likes to be known, Freiburg. But if you're looking for the book, you must look under J.W. Freiburg. Uh, he has a PhD from UCLA in psychology and sociology, and also a degree from Harvard Law School uh, in jurisprudence, and so uh, a doctor of jurisprudence. So he is well-versed in two very important fields uh, that surprisingly uh, intermingle and synthesize more often than one might normally consider or think. He's also the author of a trilogy of books fascinating each and every one. The first is entitled Four Seasons of Loneliness. The second is Growing Up Lonely. And the third I'm happy to devote time to today is called Surrounded by Others and Yet So Alone, a lawyer's case stories of love, loneliness and litigation. Uh, you've got all those nice L's, all right? So we have love, loneliness, litigation, and it's litigation is the one that gets a little prickly. How has that manifested itself in so many instances in your career? You've been a very successful trial lawyer, and uh, and and these, these issues have emerged. Uh, when did they first emerge in a case that uh, was paramount in your reckoning with this being a, a sustaining issue? Because I happen to have the previous... Uh, doctorate in social psychology, I was asked to be general counsel to children's social service agencies who wanted someone who had that ear, who could listen to their clinicians at the same time as helping them with a new lease or the guy who fell down the stairs, the mundane, boring legal work of everyday life. So more and more, the clinicians began to seek legal consultation from their clinical sessions. Let's say the world was becoming more litigious. There were more regulations to follow. My job was to listen to the clinician who described a particular case and answer the legal questions they had. But in the back of my mind, I, having been trained as a social psychologist, kept hearing what they were saying uh, on that level and noticing the patterns. And the pattern I've mentioned earlier that really struck me was how the issue of separation and disconnection and loneliness became more and more prevalent in these clinical reports from, from the psychologists and psychiatrists. So how to write about that? I have these files, I don't know, something like 1,400 case files that are of any interest at all. And um, when I was looking through them as how to write about the interrelationship between what I was seeing as a lawyer and the ever more present problem, public health issue of chronic loneliness, um, it, it struck me that the way to do that effectively was to see if I couldn't write up the stories, the case stories. We all love stories. I have a five-year-old grandson. He'll sit quietly 
Most of his life, he's running around at about 200 miles an hour. <laughs> but if you want to read him a story, he'll sit as quiet as a mouse. Yes. Um, and uh, 95-year-olds love good stories, too. We all love good stories. So I, I got the idea, uh, particularly because law cases present themselves sometimes in story format. There's a beginning, there's the work on the case, and then it comes to an end in litigation, especially. You meet you meet the clients. They tell me this. They tell you the story. You interview the witnesses. You read the documents. You try to negotiate or mediate. If it doesn't work, you go in front of a probate and family court judge and you have a trial. Beautiful story format. So I experimented with it in the first book, Four Seasons of Loneliness. Four seasons being four stages of life. One about a small child. One about a a young person, a medium age person, and an elderly person. Um, and the story format works so well, instead of hundreds of people being interested in like my academic books that preceded that. Now there were tens of thousands of people reading the books and calling me up and animating my life with their interest in the topic. I then was asked to organize a, uh, I think it's the first ever conference on loneliness and children and the papers from that conference became the edited book, Growing Up Lonely. So again, it's rather the drier academic look at the issue. But then once again, I turned to story format in my recent book that came out last year, Surrounded by Others and Yet So Alone. And there are five stories there about the five ways in which people misconnect with others, that they mess up their relationships or have such compromised relationships that they receive little or no nurturing and warmth from them. Well, dipping in, if we may, to each narrative, uh, let's look at all those five uh, and examine them uh, with the counterpart stories, if you don't mind. So what would be the first? Well, the five stories have to do with the five types of misconnection. And I didn't derive these theoretically, Einstein or something like that. All I did was look at my case files and sort of put them in piles physically on the floor, actually. I did this one night, went right through the whole night. It was such a fascinating exercise. Um, so how, what, what were the ways empirically that people had misconnected with others? How did they mess up these relationships? What was going wrong? Uh, and there were five sort of piles at the end of that long night. One was about obstructed connection. Some people are just too busy. They have too much going on in their lives to pay attention to their relationships. We are all familiar with that. We've all seen that take place. And I had a wonderful story uh, to tell about a little boy whose father was a financier of uh, a business, I think they call it mezzanine capital investment kind of company, uh, way more interested in that than in his charming little cancer-inflicted 10-year-old. And the mother was a mayor, mayor equivalent, in a, a very tony town just outside of Boston. And both of these parents were not delivering enough love to their wonderful little boy, such that he described to me how he couldn't as he phrased it, feel their love. Let me give you his quote, because I think it's amazing. He said, I know my parents love me, but their love feels like the light that comes out of a flashlight whose batteries are just about dead. It's only a glow. It doesn't show you which way to go. Wow. How old was this child who said that? Ten. Wow. Ten. 
and he's he's lying in a bed in the cancer ward of Children's Hospital. Mm. The head of that of that department called me up and said, "This little boy says he needs a lawyer." I laughed. He said, "Could you come by? I don't know what he has in mind." So I went by Children's Hospital. What a precocious child! I mean, it's phenomenal. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Phenomenal little child. The the story on him in, in the book is I take no credit. I'm just chronicling what he said and did. Um, but it's quite amazing. When you pass through a cancer ward, a children's cancer ward, I had never done that before. It is a, a shocking experience, I needless to say. And I came upon his bed and this little boy glowed like, like bright lights on a Christmas tree. He was a full of personality. All of the nurses on the ward were surrounding him, spoiling him. And when I went up to him and was introduced by the head of pediatrics who had called me over to come as a favor. The little boy said, could you leave us now? I need, I need to talk to my lawyer or lawyer man. As he called <laughs> it was charming and amazing. And he told me this story about how come his parents couldn't make him feel their love. Um, I of course went to interview the parents because I had the a threat, not not too realistic, but they didn't know that, that if they didn't talk to me about what was going on, I would turn the case over to social services and they might be interviewed by the Department of Social Services. And since the mother was a mayor of her town and the father was a big time businessman, they agreed to talk to me. Uh, the father confirmed pretty quickly that he loved his son, but that uh, he was very busy at work. He would try to go by more often to the hospital. The mother had gone by every day. She did what, what one would expect from a showing up point of view, but there was some element of disconnect. Now, the whole story is about where that derived from in her life. Um, it actually came from the fact that she lived in, in fear. She had committed a felony as a very young person and had lived her entire life in fear that it would come to light. And since she had stepped into the political sphere, of course, mm. a scandal was a public affair. It should it ever come to fruition. So it was really a fear based inability to fully connect with her son. But I don't want to spoil the story in sure, more detail. Sure. OK, um, the next occurrence. But before we go there, let me remind everyone with whom I'm speaking. You're listening to Watching America, of course. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, your host, and delightfully so because of my special guest today, Dr. J.W. Freiberg. He likes to go by the name Terry, of course, and a family nickname, evidently. But if you're looking for the work, you will find it listed under J. W. Freiberg. And the book is entitled Surrounded by Others and Yet So Alone, A Lawyer's Case Stories of Love, Loneliness, and Litigation. The second example, uh, Dr. Terry, that you would bring to our attention. Well, so we've looked at obstructed connections. Sometimes connections are fraudulent. Sometimes people lie on the way into a relationship about who they are, what they believe in, what their values are. Let me give you a shocking statistic. About 40% of currently formed relationships in the United States come from dating sites and the internet equivalents. And another study has shown that about half of all the information that people disclose about themselves is materially false. So something like 40% of relationships are currently being formed on a fraudulent basis. Uh, I had the fascinating 
case to report. So how to how to tell that in story format? I happen to be the lawyer for a Chinese opera star um, named Shi Shi Pei Pu, and if you saw the Broadway Tony Award winning play M Butterfly. Mm-hmm. Or the magnificent film that Jeremy Irons made, also called M Butterfly, readily visible on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll understand that for 30 years, a French diplomat who met a Chinese opera star in Beijing believed he had met a woman. But in fact, it was a man. And none of that came to anybody's knowledge until they were arrested for international espionage in France after having moved there from China. And the, his wife was sent to the woman's prison only to be rejected, uh, presumably at the showering room, and sent back to the men's prison. So there's a chap who was married to somebody for 30 years and who had their gender wrong. I think that must be the most extreme case of fraudulent entry into a relationship yeah, I mean, that you, I've ever heard of. You've got to forgive me, but one wonders if the marriage was ever consummated somehow, and and wouldn't that be an indication well, that things were to, not as you, as, as you can uh, well you can well imagine that the French press, when these when these when this was all discovered. The espionage that had gone on, and it was discovered <laughs> that the that there had been a fraudulent representation of gender successfully carried out through three decades. People asked precisely the question you asked. There's a the fabulous play and a book and a movie on the topic, and I've written up my review having been his lawyer, um, and I uh, direct people to the story to uh, look further into the particular issue you've raised. Wow. So at this point now, you are basically, I think, on the on on the uh, brink of introducing the third concept. So the third concept would be: uh, I found that some poorly constructed relationships, some unfulfilling relationships, weren't working because they were so tenuous. People weren't assured of the continuity of their relationships. We've all been in relationships, I don't know about all of us, but many of for sure have been in a relationship where one begins to suspect that the other person is pulling away, that mm. they're getting less and less involved. I found a wonderful story in one of my law cases to tell. A little girl who, who was the child of a woman who had uh, become pregnant from a relationship that ended very quickly. It was just a brief relationship. Um, she then had... Uh, had married someone else and who gladly raised this child they didn't father. And when that child was sick, the mother fell unexpectedly ill and died quickly of, of a stroke. And the father came to my office because he wasn't the biological father and he had never performed a what we call a step-parent adoption. So he had no legal relationship to this child at all. My job was to overcome the the bias at law, which would have delivered the child to her estranged grandmother rather than to this loving man she'd known as her father. So the little girl found herself in an entirely tenuous circumstance. She'd lost one parent, but she had the security of the other, but now that relationship was threatened. So that's an extreme case of a very tenuous and very important relationship. And there's a wonderful trial uh, where we try to prove 
I won't let give on whether we succeed or not, but our job was to try to prove to the judge that he should overcome the law, which pointed in favor of the grandmother, because it was the loving father who would do a far better job of raising that child. And it, it's a, a story that brings out uh, the frightening circumstance of people whose important relationships are not so certain they can't be at all sure that it'll be there tomorrow or next year. And the pain that this gives them and the disconnection this breeds in their heart to protect themselves against potential shock and loss. Mm. Well, let's move on uh, fascinatingly to, I think we're up to number four uh, as an example of, of loneliness. So number four is one-way connection. Sometimes people enter relationships for entirely different reasons. Um, somebody's looking uh, for love and the other person's looking for employment or security uh, from money, uh, whatever. Uh, and so some relationships are, are doomed, if you like, because people have very different goals in the relationship. And I found a story that, um, that talks about that. Uh, but I want to move on to the fifth one because I think it's way more interesting. Okay. Now, the fifth one, as I understand it, is the most dangerous form of misapplication of, if you will, relational love and communication and uh, an invitation, if you will, of the most extreme order of loneliness. Could you tell us about it? Yes. Um, I, I call it a dangerous connection. Sometimes people are in a relationship, which is literally dangerous, sometimes to the point of being violently so. And of course, we see this in spousal abuse. And I came upon a case, a remarkable case um, of spousal abuse. Uh, and I, th I think it makes quite a readable story because it's all, I frame it all in the framework of bread. Uh, I lived in a neighborhood which was a bread desert. There was just no good bakery local to me. Um, and a French bakery with just the charm of being in Paris kind of level baking opened. The uh, store next door became a coffee shop uh, and a moribund uh, hairdresser moved out and a child's gift store on the other side opened. So all of a sudden, this little neighborhood was animated by this beautiful bakery. Mm. The quality of the bread was like being in France. But after about a year of this superb uh, baking, the baking went down noticeably downhill. No more crunch to the baguette. No more wonderful uh, sort of smoky flavor to the, to the uh, morning buns. It was very noticeably downhill. And the Baker, the master baker, was sitting in the back of her store with oversized sunglasses on. I was insensitive enough to pay no attention and not add two, to two, two and two together. I just thought, oh, darn, it's the quality of the baking's gone south. But when I tried it one more time, happily, some months later, it was back to its excellent self. I was so happy again about it. And then it went downhill again. So after about three of these cycles and seeing those oversized sunglasses again and again, I realized or I had the idea that she was a battered wife and that when she baked bread during the moments of violence, her salty tears fell into the batter and spoiled it. The bread, the bread reflected her mood. 
So then I got busy and uh, wow, intervened in my own sort of sneaky way, which almost cost me my license to practice law mm. because I put my private eye from the law firm on the case to see what in the world was up in her life. Yes. And he, he pretty well confirmed that her motorcycle riding husband, who was a shut in, uh, mm. clearly uh, someone who had agoraphobia, basically lived full time in the house with the shades drawn and no phone or television wires going into her house, um, encaptured her uh, after her workday and disallowed her from going out or connecting through television or phone and so on. Very, I'd read up on, I found myself so totally ignorant of spousal abuse. I knew nothing. So I, I read what I could very quickly. I called some ex-colleagues uh, from the uh, sociology department where I had been a professor, got some references to articles and books to read. And suddenly became aware for the first time of how widespread and how remarkably violent uh, it, it, uh, spousal abuse can be. I then was able to uh, convince the Department of Social Services to intervene on her behalf. And much to our surprise, we found that there was a child who had been living with this couple, a complete shut-in child who was, was never allowed to exit the house to go to school. Uh, to mingle with other children. So I was involved in the intervention that the Department of Social Services made. The child who turned out to be a remarkable boy who had, who had really taken a grasp of how the world worked in the most insightful and clever ways, uh, was ready to be rescued. He came out delighted to meet other children at a residential so children's social service agency. And then the judge involved in that end of the case told me a wonderful story. She said that she grew up with a lot of brothers in the Boston area who broke everything in the household. And their father had typed out a form that he taped up on the wall. Remember when typewriters had half black ink, half red ink? Yes, I, I do. I, those ribbons. I remember. <laughs> yes, very much. Remember that? Yes. He's, but this one was in red ink to emphasize how important it was. And what the father had written was, if you break it, you fix it. So Judge McGovern said to me, okay, your intervention broke this bizarre family up and we're very glad to have the child out. And obviously the wife has been relieved of and is living elsewhere and the marriage is done. But you represent all these adoption agencies. Go find a wonderful family for this boy because as my father phrased it, you broke it, you fix it. Wow, wow. So the rest of the story is a... I think, wonderful tale about how we set out to find a family for the boy. And lo and behold, the family he chose, he had in the end two, one was a medical doctor who had gone to Harvard Med School, a very sort of starch collared kind of gentleman, and how he'd be in that very proper family and probably aimed at higher education and all. But he didn't choose them. He chose the family, an Italian family that run one of Boston's oldest and most wonderful bakeries in the North End. And he became a baker. <laughs> this so is a novel. This is great. This is it, absolutely- It's a wonderful story. I take no credit for it. I just wrote oh, it down. Oh, you must but take credit for it. I mean, it's, it's all right. First of all, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to go off the rails again. And my audience is, is, is used to be doing this. But I think we have callings in our lives- uh, for occupations, and clearly you do, both law and, uh, and psychology and sociology. 
But I also think the, the, there is uh, reason to entertain the concept for, for all of us that we might have life missions that we don't know about. You seem to have a, a great sensitivity for a man to be able to notice the change of the quality of dough and bread and crust, then to recognize cycles, then to begin to conclude that upstairs in the bakery or somewhere, uh, there might be great misgivings of, of what's going on. And you to discern that is phenomenal. Do you think there is um, a identifiable purpose and mission to your life with the kinds of things that you've been led into and your intervention? I mean, you've changed lives without question for the better. Well, I mean, it was largely by chance um, that I switched from being a professor and got the law degree. And again, largely by chance that these um, children's social service agencies thought I would be a good general counsel because I had the two trainings. So I, I can't take credit for that. But let me answer your question from this little boy's life, Mickey. Um, when I first met him, when we first got him out of this of this abusive household where the his stepmother, if you like, had had got beaten, battered over and over again and where Mickey had taken some blows, too, including a broken arm. Um, when we first took him out of that household to the uh, one of these children's homes where he could uh, spend time while the judge decided what to do with him on a permanent basis. We were, he was being interviewed by a clinician there, and I was privileged to sit in on that. And suddenly, something she said clued him in. Because remember, the, the woman in his life, the only woman in his life, had been the, the baker who came home from each day from her wonderful bakery and was entrapped inside for the rest of the afternoon and evening. And she had soothed him after, be, after beatings, particularly her own beatings, quite violent by her husband, by telling him baking recipes. And at the home for children, something cued him and he went off into himself. He became a blank eyed, you know, blank stare, looking at nothing. And he recited the wonderful recipe for making French croissants. Wow. How you take the dough and how you knead the dough with the extra butter on top of the dough and how you roll it and cut it into triangles and then roll them up from the bottom to the pointy side and give them a slight bend. All of this was coming from inside of him in a voice that wasn't even his, if you like, coming up from him. And then how that predisposed him to the wonders of bread making, which of course has played such a role in human history around the globe. Mm. And so when we found him, these two potential families for to adopt him a year and a half or so later, one a fancy Harvard med school doctor and one a, a wonderful chap uh, and his big Italian family who ra ran this wonderful bakery, still there called the Modern Bakery in the North End, how the boy opted for the bread and how he told the baker he wanted to learn to make Italian bread. And maybe the baker would be interested in the little bit the boy had learned about French baking. So there's a really interesting story an instance of what you're talking about, how people can be predisposed by something in their childhood and how it can guide them towards the path they take later in life. 
I suspect my audience will not forgive me unless I ask you uh, about the child now. How old is he, perhaps? And have you ever had any subsequent contact with him? Yes, indeed. He runs that bakery today along with an adopted sibling or two. And um, and it's it's uh, an amazing uh, bakery. It's still hard to go there because I always leave with gifts of more bread than I can possibly consume my own children having grown and left the house. Well, next time um, I'll go with you. <laughs> it, 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 and, uh, and the French baker, who, by the way, was never able to cure the trauma of, of the violence that had been visited upon her mm. in respect to having another relationship. So yeah. I see her, too, because she runs a French bakery that I'm fond of going to as well. And and um, I did go to see them upon publication of the book to give them a copy. The uh, little boy from the battered household who runs the Italian bakery uh, gave me a wonderful quote, uh, paraphrasing it. It's um, a Gandhi said to a to a person who's starving to death. Love appears in the form of bread. Mm. And when I went soon thereafter to the, to the French bakery uh, to give her a copy of the book, she told me a, a wonderful quote, which was that she had found and pinned up on the wall in the back of her bakery. Julia Child had said, bread. Remember her accents you know, yes. uh, from the Brood. PBS series? <laughs> sort of like that. You know, yeah. Very six good. Six foot woman with a big voice. She said, the problem with America has been that its bread tastes like Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, you know, bread has been so important. You know, I, I'm, tempted, many... I'm tempted to make a terrible pun. No wonder. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and when I was a child, that's all there was, yeah. Wonder Bread. That's right. You, you could crumble it up. So I have great fun in the story <laughs> because let me go further your question about being Please. predisposed yes. to a topic. When I was a little boy in, in the 1940s, big households still baked their own bread. And my great-grandmother had a, a large household and Margaret, her uh, German cook, could bake like a queen. And on Saturday mornings, I was allowed upon demonstration of flawlessly quiet behavior to sit on the edge of the kitchen table as she turned bread, flour, salt, sugar, vanilla, and just a very few other ingredients into a wondrous display of different breads, uh, samples of which were given over for my tasting. So in my little childhood of, of age four and five, is this memory of the odors coming from the old-fashioned, massive, big, black, 3,000-pound, whatever weighed gas ovens of, mm. of a 1940s kitchen. Um, I next met bread as a college undergraduate with about $500 in my blue jeans for three months of hitchhiking around Europe and, and the UK and meeting all the different breads I had never known each country by country. And the last country, as chance would have it, that I went into was France. And there I met my first baguette. Mm. And life has never been the same since. <laughs> I, uh, I only have one grievance with you. You are too modest. 
All right. Uh, you say that you can't take credit for the things that you've done in your life. Well, I respectfully disagree, and I'm giving you credit. I'm giving you credit, sir, for being a sensitive soul, a great intellect, a wonderful American, and you are part of the fiber that makes me so proud to live in this nation. And I can't begin to tell you sufficiently how much I have enjoyed this hour. What's next for you, sir? What do you want to do? Well, uh, two things. I've been asked to write a third book about cases where people escaped chronic loneliness, which it turns out is no easier to to get rid of and move on from than is clinical depression. Mm. So I'm working on that book uh, and I'm working with a, a production company to take some of these stories and make films of them. Absolutely. So, Particularly the bread one. I mean, I, I, I have read novellas that don't have as much intellectual, emotional nourishment as the story that you've just shared. I'm, I actually teach screenwriting. It's, it's just, I see it so cinematically. It's so rich, so fabulous. And you as a character, as the architect, uh, observing these things can, can really forward and push the story. It's been wonderful to have you here, and I wish you great blessings, sir. My guest has been Dr. J.W. Freiberg. Incidentally, the spelling is F-R-E-I-B-E-R-G. And his book is entitled Surrounded by Others and Yet So Alone. Sir, thank you very much for being a part of Watching America. God bless. It's been utterly delightful. Thank you so very much. Take care. Take care. been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm Watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. I want to thank you for making this program possible by your kind and generous contributions. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.